The following program is a podcast1.com production. It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can keep more of what you make. Our web address, clark.com. When you have questions for me, go to clark.com slash ask. Coming up in 20 minutes, today's Clark Rageous Moment, a Ponzi scheme stole millions from people promising that you were going to make money scalping tickets to popular events. Wait till you hear how this one unfolded and who actually got scalped. And coming up a half hour from now, you look at signs and on packages, all the warning labels. Do they make any difference to you? Do you even see them? I got some interesting info for you about how warning labels now are almost like noise in your life. I want you to know that when you go on the web, when you surf, when you use apps, there's so much spying going on you on about you. I read a story recently about something that has caused calls to me here on the show where people have wanted to know how could you go to a website looking at an item you're considering buying and you either just leave that site or you abandon your cart where you put that item in it and then potentially for days ads follow you for that item, no matter what website you're going to or anything like that. It's such a creep-out factor, right? But what you don't know is something I want you to be aware of, and that is some of the most popular destinations on the web continually collect data on you and use that data to build deep profiles on you for all different purposes. Google is the one that has gotten the most attention. And if you don't remember me saying this before, you didn't hear it, Google now has a very easy procedure for you to see what information they have on you and to give you the ability to limit what is kept on you or what is collected about you. And it is a very simple, easy-to-use dashboard you can see the link at Clark.com, including the new dashboard from Microsoft. Microsoft collects tremendous amounts of data on you, and although it doesn't give as much control to you as the Google one does, you can see what they're collecting, and you can give them your preferences as to what they're continuing to keep and package and sell and use about you. And there are so many examples of this. The Alexa devices, the Echo that so many people bought, hey Alexa, what's the weather today, that kind of thing. You can't even begin to fathom how much data Amazon is collecting. And I'll just tell you this and use your own imagination People are pulling Alexas out of their bedrooms who have them in there because of what Alexa may be hearing going on in what you think is the privacy of your own bedroom. And there's now a procedure for you to be able to delete a lot of the stuff 
that Amazon is collecting on you. So I know this is all like extra steps for you. And I know people that are extreme on privacy say, I told you so, I told you so. That's why I don't use a cell phone. That's why I don't use the internet. That's why I don't do this, use credit cards or anything else. So if it's important to you to go completely off the grid, you have to live an analog life. You have to go back to about 1985 to live an analog life. But if you value your privacy that much, you have to take those extreme kind of steps and eliminate any plastic in your life, any web in your life, even having a feature cell phone in your life. But if you don't want to go back to 1985 and at the same time you value your privacy, there's some work involved for you to have a layer of protection and I'll help you through that process every time I can where there's a relatively easy procedure for you to get your privacy back under control. April is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, April. How are you doing? Hi, Clark. Thanks for taking the call. I'm glad to have you. So you are trying to help family members. How's that? What's going on? I have three grandchildren. Um, One is two years old and the other two are one-year-old. And I have been searching to try to find... Um, I'd like to open a savings account for each of them that will gain as much interest as possible. Not necessarily a college fund, but something that they can use, possibly when they're 19, 20 years old, um, whether to buy a home or a car or go to school. I sell real estate, and I do make a six-figure income, so I am anxious to contribute and just have my checking account debited each month to go towards these three savings accounts. I contacted... um, a financial advisor, and the only thing he could really offer me, he called it a glorified savings account, and that it would be an annuity paying 7% interest. Whoa, 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 let's see. My goodness. Oh, no, no. Promising no. you... The magic of a guaranteed 7% return on the money for your grandkids. Yes, sir. All right. So, first of all, do you know that annuities are designed under the tax code that your grandkids would not be able to touch them without severe tax penalties till they hit their 59th and a half birthday? And you said they're two and one. Yes, sir. They, they didn't tell me that. Of course not. Because in the disclosure that they give you and in the contract and in all that stuff, it says do not rely upon us for tax advice. We do not give tax advice. And so the commissions, though, on getting you to buy that thing are gigantic. The promise really? of 7% is a big fat lie. Mm-hmm. You're making me pretty unhappy here with with the pitch that you heard for the annuity junk. And wow, annuity, so automatically in your mind, somebody mentions annuity, always remember to attach the word junk. Annuity junk, annuity junk. And it'll help you when somebody tries to give you a pitch. 
And if there's ever an annuity that uh, there are rare kinds of annuities that insurance agents don't promote because they don't make any real commission from them, mm-hmm. that you're not going to hear out of an insurance agent's mouth and in very rare circumstances might be appropriate. But that is not the path for you to take. Can I make a wow, different suggestion? Okay. I have a different suggestion, different path I like, okay? Ready? I'm ready. I'm All right, ready. they're very young. And you want to put in money in dribs and drabs. There's nothing better I can think of that you could do than walking into a Charles Schwab branch. You know, the discount broker Charles Schwab? Yes. Uh-huh. And open three custodial accounts for those three wonderful grandchildren. Okay. You can uh, open an account for them. I think it's maybe... See, there are $100 is the minimum, I think, for a kid. And you open the accounts, and then you can buy commission-free, commission-free fund for them that automatically is purchased every month. Good. And grow Good. money for them over the years. Now, the downside of what you're doing is if any of the three do go to college, the money that's in these accounts hurts them and qualifying for financial aid for college. Oh, okay. And that is the downside of any money you have in a custodial account, pretty much of any kind, for the benefit of a child. I just want you to know that that is part of the mix. Right, right. And the alternative that I can suggest to you, I haven't... I I really would like for them to follow in my footsteps in real estate, like... You know, pay for their school to go to real estate or appraisal or, or whatever they desire to do. Well, the money you put aside and you let it grow every month, by the time the two-year-old, 16 years from now, the 18 years old, the one-year-old, 17 years from now, they should have a substantial amount of money from you depositing money every month. And the tax treatment is very favorable on the money you'd put in one of these funds at Schwab. And you can sit down with somebody at a Schwab office, and they'll help you through the whole process of setting it up for the three grandkids and getting those accounts going and setting it up so you fund them every month. And the commission you pay, again, is nothing. Susan is with us. Hello, Susan. How are you today? Hi, I am well. How are you? Great, thank you. So you have taken the leap of faith and frozen your credit. Yes. And how long ago did you freeze your credit files? It's only been a month. And have I ruined your life yet? Oh, no. Actually, the person that took my credit card started that. I'm sorry? The person that took my credit card started to ruin my life. Oh, okay. So (laughs) now you're you're in credit freeze land, which gives you such peace of mind. It doesn't matter what breaches there are. You're still A-OK. Okay. So uh, now that you've done that, you're thinking, do you need to do something else? What is that something else? Well, having it, um, having my credit monitored, I've been on a couple sites. I can't really tell the difference. Do I need both? No, you don't need to be in credit monitoring at all anymore. Okay. Because if your credit is frozen, the damage that would be done is something that that you'd be concerned about is somebody applying for credit as if they're you attempting to change your 
uh, mailing address or billing address, those things are protected by doing a credit freeze. No one's going to be able to apply for credit as if they're you. The credit bureaus, interestingly enough, when your credit is frozen, if someone attempts to do a change of address on one of your credit cards and divert your statement, the credit bureaus immediately will send you a notice that wouldn't normally come to you saying, your credit's frozen, we've received a notice of change of address, did you move? And they'll send it to your what they think is your old address and what they've been told is your new address. So it provides even an additional layer of protection. But I do need to say one thing. You said you had a credit card that was breached, right? Yes, and actually they only took my number and made their own card. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's what happens because all the I time. I had my card in my hand when they called me and said, are you two and a half miles away from where I live uh-huh. trying to purchase you know, this item in this store? And I said, no, I have my card on me. Great. So the fraud prevention tools at your credit card issuer prevented that. By the way, credit freeze will not stop that kind of shenanigan. Okay. That goes on, but that causes like zero issues for you. When somebody tries to take over your account, minor hassle should never cost you money. Completely different than somebody attempting to apply for credit as if they're you, which is why credit freeze is such an invaluable tool. And as you may have used, Susan, my credit freeze guide at Clark.com. Cheap to do, great insurance. Today's Clark Rageous moment concerns something so unusual and so clever in a bad way by the crooks that I need to make you aware that criminals can come up with Ponzi schemes for almost anything. Scams, rip-offs, outrages. It's a Clark Regis moment. People across America lost millions and millions of dollars in a Ponzi scheme where the individuals have been arrested They're facing a wide variety of federal charges, but the money is almost certainly gone. $81 million taken from any of a number of people who bought into this thing where they thought they were going to be rich being part of a ticket scalping operation, selling tickets to hot concerts and hot events like the Play Hamilton And so the idea, the pitch that people believed was that the organizers of this were pooling together people's money as investors and then turning around and buying large blocks of tickets to marquee events, marking them up and selling them, and then you'd get the profits. But guess what? They were just taking the money. According to the Fed's They spent a tiny amount of the money on tickets, so it had the appearance that they were actually in the ticket brokering business. But what they were actually doing was they were paying for jewelry, casino gambling, private school tuition for their kids, the organizers behind this, the scamsters. And there's so many people out there pitching private opportunities like right now one of the hottest is private placements in real estate some will be legit 
but very unlikely to make money because of the massive fees involved. If you need to get out, you can't because they're not publicly traded. And then occasionally you're going to get scammed by phony baloney real estate ventures. The message for you, whether it's tickets to a hot event or anything else where you're told you're being invited in to be part of a private select opportunity to make money, know that most often what you're being invited into, whether it's a criminal enterprise or not, is an opportunity for you to lose money. The only people who make money, the organizers of most private placements. Be careful out there. Number one targets that get scammed by these things, doctors. You know, if you're looking to buy paper towels or a can of beans, knowing what other people paid for them isn't really that important. Paper towels, it's beans. But for a big purchase, like a car, that kind of information isn't just helpful, it's essential. Well, with TrueCar, you can do just that. You see, TrueCar lets you see what other people in your area paid for the car that you're looking to buy, which will help you determine a fair price. And the best part? You can work directly with a True Car certified dealer to establish a fair price before you even show up on the lot. Yeah, that's right. True Car certified dealers have all the same information you do and are just there to help you get the car you want while offering you a faster, easier buying experience. Who doesn't want that? And knowing what others have paid has helped True Car users save an average of over $3,000 off MSRP. So when you're ready to buy that car, there's only one place to go. Visit TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. You can get it at TrueCar.com or the super easy to use TrueCar app. Some features not available in all states. I'm so glad you've joined us on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. We serve you at Clark.com. You want deals? ClarkDeals.com. Have you noticed that when you go shopping for something, there are warning labels on like everything? And you go into a restaurant in California, and when you go into the men's bathroom, there's usually a warning posted that pregnant women shouldn't drink alcohol. Really, in the men's restroom? <laughs> but you can pick up almost any product, and there will be a warning. Joel, I'm just curious. There's something back there, some kind of industrial wipes. Let's see if it has any kind of warning on it I should be reading to people. Right there, Joel, that circular thing. Grab that. Let's see if it has anything on here as a Warning. Warning. Wipes are safe on most surfaces, but always test on an inconspicuous area before using on entire surface. Conforms to ASTMD 4236 testing standards. Wow. So, <laughs> telling you, just about anything you pick up will have a variety of warnings of some kind. And we get to the point where we don't even notice them. And if you don't believe me, there was a report in the Harvard Business Review that researchers from Harvard and Vanderbilt found that what's happened is that people can no longer distinguish between a warning that actually matters 
and a warning that's just a bunch of junk. And so we've reached the point where essentially the boy who cried wolf, nobody believes the wolf's actually there. And this is something I have to be so aware of because I have a child who has extreme peanut death allergy, nuts and uh, peanuts and tree nuts, and just the dust can make her quite ill and potentially put her at risk for her life. So I have become an obsessive label reader of every food item that ever comes in our house. And anytime I'm in the store, I'm obsessively reading the labels. So this is a a real problem because I have a specific reason I'm looking. For most people, you hit the hit the wall you don't even notice at all so i have a clark type suggestion for this companies want to put on every kind of warning they can because they're worried about getting sued right so this is defensive to have warning labels for everything the answer in my book is you have a level of warning so if it's a five you see before the warning, it means this is ultra important and could be a matter of life and death. And you go all the way down to one, which would be something like the one I read off the the package there for the wipes for a one right board or whatever, whiteboard, whatever you call that. And that way, we would have the ability and our brains could easily process, oh, I don't pay any attention to threes, twos, or ones. Or, I have lots of time to waste in my life, I read all warnings. Or, I'm only interested in level five warnings. And that way, companies can have their legal shield of putting all the mostly idiotic warnings on products, and you and I would have the ability to know when to pay attention and when not to. Stephanie is with us. Hello, Stephanie. Welcome to the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Clark. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. What's going All on, right. Stephanie? Okay, my husband and I, we just sold a rental house, and we're looking to buy a couple other rental houses closer to us in their neighboring states. And our question is, should we buy one house cash, or should we split the money and put like a 50% down payment and finance the rest on two different houses? Okay, so the conventional answer is that you would want to do two homes, each with 50% equity in them, as an example. Uh And you'd have a loan on each, and you would be able to instantly have two rental properties. Accountants would tell you there are advantages in ownership that way with part equity and part a loan. But I am dull on this. When I do a rental property, I like to, if I can, I want to own the thing from day one. I, If it were me, you lower the risk to you by just paying cash for one. You only have one tenant to deal with. And as you do well with that property and you're able to generate income far beyond your carry because you have no mortgage on it, you 
in hopefully just a few years' time, we'll build up enough of a war chest to then buy another one, maybe for cash. Okay. And, and that would be that would be my leaning very, very carefully, conservatively opinion. There is a reason, though, today that my the way I would do it doesn't have as much credibility. And there's a special reason why now you might want to do it your own path and not what I would do. Interest rates, even for investor-owned property, particularly with 50% down, are so unbelievably low that there is an opportunity you may not have again in your lifetime to leverage that money by two rental properties, have a loan on each at very, very, very low interest rates, and most of the money that you're paying back over the years will be just straight principal with almost no interest. Okay. So this time with these very low interest rates trumps my cautious way of handling buying rental properties. And I think that, it, that it's worth it to go out more on the risk level and buy two owning half of each than one owning the whole thing. Okay. Okay. See, so. you, you heard mixed messages from me, didn't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just because we are in an unusual cycle with a very abnormal pattern that is likely not to repeat in our lifetimes. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and we were also considering, you know, for tax reasons, if it would be more beneficial. Well, that's, what the, that's why I said that's what the accountants would always say. Mm-hmm. But if you were paying a, a high interest rate on the rental properties, that would be different. But right now, even on rental properties, when you go past 30% equity, the interest rates you can get are so amazingly favorable that I think you go two for one on this one. Just make sure that you screen your tenants just as well with the two properties as you did with the one you just sold. Joe joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Joe. Hello. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. You have an option with your 401k plan you want to run by me. Yes. My 401k plan offers a guaranteed for life uh, feature um, basically, from my understanding, that I pay a percentage of my contributions that will go to this this feature that will guarantee money in case the uh, amount dips below what my initial principal was. And I'm only 37 years old, and knowing that I've got 30 more years till retirement, I'm curious if I'm, you know, am I enrolled in this program too early, being so young from retirement? Yeah, likely so. Uh, the purpose of these guaranteed things, where you get uh, income for life is something that will become uh, way before you retire a common part of corporate retirement plans through 401ks because what happens is people contribute through the years and if they've been good contributors to their plan they hit retirement age and then they don't know what to do with the money that they have and how to make sure it lasts through retirement. So what will become common in the next 10 years is plans will have a thing once you've been through the accumulation phase where you will be able to take a portion or all of your 401k 
and turn it into basically your own one-person pension plan or if you're married into a two-person pension plan. The offers that are out now are ones where you have to pay higher expenses on the money you contribute to your 401k all through your working lifetime to simply have the privilege of, if you choose, to convert to a lifetime stream of income in retirement. So it creates an expense drag on your plan that I don't want there, especially for you being 37. Okay. Was that did, – did I make any sense or was that too pointy-headed? No, that's some research I've done. That's kind of what it was hinting at, but I've been in the program now for five years, and obviously by getting moving my, my allocation out of that fund, uh, I'm essentially going to lose out on what – you know, that insurance essentially I put Can in. Can you leave the money you've already put into that choice there and then do future contributions in things that don't include that additional cost? That's a good question. Yeah, I'll have to look into that. Because if you can not. do that, then you'd have uh, you'd have part of the money you've saved already would have the next 25 years or so to grow where you'd know it would be a certain guaranteed income for you and then the rest at a much lower expense would likely outgrow it but you'd have a little bit of ag in each basket makes sense at what age would that guaranteed for life program make sense my belief is that the programs that are coming you you don't do anything till you retire and then you'll have an election to convert it into a lifetime stream of guaranteed income or have the money distributed in the traditional manner. What's unusual about the pioneers out there is they're setting it up where you have to make that election while you're accumulating money, and there's no reason that should be part of it. Follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. Our web address, clark.com. When you got a question for me, go clark.com slash ask. Justin's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Justin. Hi, Clark. Thank you so much for taking my call. My pleasure. What's going on, Justin? I have a small child, and I have been weighing the pros and cons of private versus public school for primary school, and wanted to know if you had any opinions on how to determine if um, we would get my money's worth out of private school. Well, in my household, the answer would be whatever my wife says. (laughs) Because I wanted... uh, our kids to go to public elementary school because we have access to a very good public elementary school but my wife was not hearing of it and having anything to do with it so if you go with my wife's always right kind of thing that's how our kids ended up at private school from the get-go but as a general thing if the public school particularly often at the elementary school level more so than in middle school or high school. You may live in a district that has a very good elementary school. And if you do, why not take advantage of that and send your young child to a public elementary school? So so I am fortunate enough to have some very good public schools around my house, but none that my son necessarily go to. So I was actually considering um, moving to be into one of those districts. Which and people, people do that all the time. That uh, near, near where we live, there's the most sought-after elementary school for hundreds of miles. And so the homes 
in that school district sell for more money just because the, it's the equivalent of going to a private school, going to that public school. And so people calculate in, hey, we're not going to have to pay 20 some odd thousand dollars a year for kindergarten through fifth because our kid can go to that public school. There you got 120 some odd thousand dollars right there back in your pocket. So I've, I've done some research, and it's easy to determine the credibility of the public school based on standardized testing, at least those what's actually tested. But I'm having a hard time uh, determining the differences between the private schools other than the class size, uh, their mission statements, and things like that. Private, school, private schools have like a, a mojo, like a reputation in an area, and there are... In every mid-sized to large community in the country, there are now private school consultants that you pay for either a cursory evaluation of your child and recommendation of private schools or a full-blown, big-time evaluation of your child and then very specific recommendations about which private school or private schools in order would be the most appropriate and best for your child. It's all a matter of how much you want to dig in on the private school. But I believe, and we should put my wife on the air and let her give her side on this, I believe that if you have access by moving to a very good public elementary school and your child thrives there, that it works. And if your child does not thrive there, then it's time at that point to move your child to a private school. But if you never try the public elementary school, you don't know that that might have been one that would be very good for your child. Right now, very fair point. Thank you so much for your time today. Okay, good luck in making a decision. Uh, Again, I live in one of those democracies where there's only one vote. You know, you got a question for me, you can post it to an Ask Clark on Clark.com, and then we take them right here on the air. And Joel, who's the first Ask Clark you got? Clark Phillip thinks you're an optometrist and says, how do I get my pupillary distance measured? Well, what you're supposed to do, pupillary distance, if you're not aware, is if you're going to use one of the discount eyeglass people online, you need your pupillary distance so that the glasses will be right for your specific eyes. A lot of the online sellers will provide you an online tool to do a self-measurement of your PD, your pupillary distance. I don't recommend that what i recommend is when you're having your eyes examined you ask the optometrist or ophthalmologist doing your eye exam if he or she could give you your pupillary distance they've measured it anyway they can just give it to you now i've found that if the person doing your eye exam also sells glasses they're not so happy about giving you your pd but if it's a place that just does eye exams they're happy to give you your pd you just have to ask that doesn't mean that people who also sell glasses won't give you your pd they just might not be happy about it okay you want to keep your favorite podcasts like this one free to download right well then all you have to do is complete a short anonymous survey which takes less than five minutes just go to podcastone.com slash my survey to answer the questions you can also get there by clicking the banner at podcastone.com If you've done this in the past, we'd like to thank you, but we do need you to do it again because we want to make sure we're giving you what you want. That's podcastone.com slash my survey or click the banner at podcastone.com. 
It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. Coming up in a half hour, we're going to talk strategies for you to make more money. That's right. The opportunity is there. If you feel dead-ended or you're not making enough, I got great ideas for you to fatten that wallet before you start spending the first dollar. And that's coming your way in just a half hour. If you want information from me, go to Clark.com. And you know about our deal site? Fast-growing, ClarkDeals.com. Why is it fast-growing? Because you're happy with the bargains you're getting. Talk about a bargain. Mint.com and the app Mint are great. What they allow you to do is for free, get your finances under control if you use the tools that are available to you. And Mint has really stood the test of time as it has continually become more sophisticated and makes it possible for you to see straight out what's happening to your money. Where's that money being spent? Where are you growing your money? Who do you owe money to? When are bills due? It is a one-stop shop for you to have control. In fact, Mint is so good at what it does that it has struck terror in the hearts and minds of the giant monster megabanks that have been working as hard as they can to try to keep you from using Mint. Several of the big banks have tried to shut you off from sharing information with Mint from your accounts. And it was just so ironic that they all seemed to do it pretty much at the same time. A little suspicious, right? Well, now the nation's, depending on how you measure, largest or second largest bank, Chase, has backed down. And Chase, which had been blocking the ability for its customers to use the fantastic budgeting and money tools that Mint offers, and remember, everything Mint offers is for free, Chase has blinked, and they're going to allow its customers to have access to Mint and its fantastic tools again. Never should have been prevented. And at the time I told you with any of the foolishness from the giant monster megabanks trying to keep you from using Mint, the answer is to fire the bank. Fire a bank that tries to restrict you getting better and how you handle your money. And so Mint is something that if you are listening to me and you've had this feeling like, I just don't know where my money goes. I don't know why I run out of money before I run out of month. Where is it all disappearing? And how can I get a better handle on meeting my goals? And you may wonder, why am I only talking about mint? Why am I not talking about competitor B and C and D and E and on like that? Well, over the years, pretty much everybody else folded. And Mint dominates the sector. You may have used Mint years ago and didn't really get into it. 
but maybe now you're more serious about building a nest egg, building a future, having a rainy day fund, M-I-N-T, both as an app and mint.com as a website. Get it to work for you. Susan's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Susan. How are you today? Doing great. How are you? Great. Thank you, Susan. You have a question for me about something that's being very heavily promoted right now. What's that? Yeah, that's right. Um, the shaving clubs. I've, I've been seeing a lot of advertisements for the two major ones, and um, I've got a husband and two teenage boys, and I was wondering what your take was on these. Well, first, Dollar Shave Club is a brilliant marketer, a phenomenal right. company. <laughs> I don't know if you've looked at, at any of their videos, Mm-hmm. But they are uh they're very funny, sometimes off color. Yep. <laughs> uh but very very clever and they have caused Gillette the biggest nightmare headache Gillette has probably ever had in the shaving business because mm-hmm. they've exposed how much cheaper you can buy really decent blades than what you'd pay for one of the Gillette. I don't know what number of blade they're on now and what system they're on now. Right. But Dollar Shave Club is really, really a deal. No matter which level, $3, 6 or 9 a month, Okay, you'll save a lot of money using Dollar Shave Club. Now, Harry's is going at the marketplace as a more premium product. They're trying to come in as this is better than what anybody else offers and that's why you should pay us quite a bit of money. It's about 30 bucks a month. Yeah, but I wasn't sure whether um, signing up for these on a monthly basis is, is an okay thing to do or not. So Yeah, there's no problem with doing either of them on the basis. Now, you know, Harry's has the thing where you choose how often you want them to ship you the $30 packet. Mm-hmm. And Dollar Shave Club, what people will do is people who've learned my method, and if you can teach uh, the three men in your household to dry their blades after each time, they'll get uh-huh. those blades to last forever in a day. I mean, the longest I've had a single blade, a single razor blade last is 14 months. Good lordy, okay. <laughs> so, because blades really deteriorate from moisture, not from the act of shaving. And okay. women in particular, women tend to leave a razor in the shower, mm-hmm. and so those blades will degrade like, bam, they're done in like a week. If you simply dry it and remove it from the shower, uh, a woman's razor might last a year or more easy. So in light of that, though, Clark, a Dollar Shave Club, I think, as I understand it, you have to, you do have to sign up for some kind of a plan, yeah. either a monthly or every other month. But so, would that be? That sounds like if if they do treat their shavers, shavers correctly, then yeah. But you got you got three much. customers in the house, so if you do one subscription and they learn to stretch them, it'll probably work out just right. Do I have? But okay. And then I can just buy three of their razors and just get one subscription? Yeah. No, if you do one subscription and you build up a supply of razors, you'll, you know, you'll transition them all to using one for, uh, for a longer period of time. Yeah. 
So you'll okay. transition them in a couple of months, and everybody will be happy, and your wallet will be the happiest. That's awesome. Okay, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Sure. And you know, if people think if I mysteriously die someday that it would be the cable company or a giant monster mega bank that would take me out, maybe it'll be Gillette that takes me out for teaching people that your blades will last a whole lot longer than you realize. Louise is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Louise. Hey, Clark. Louise, you have an unusual question for me. Yes. Um, my community is putting a, a concert, and we want to sell about 150 tickets. We would like to sell, be able to sell online, not just word of mouth. And uh, either I build a web page and, and get um, somehow... Put a, um, get a service to accept my payments, or I also went online and looked for ticket sellers just for like this one event. There is the uh, the big big name that charges a lot of uh, a lot of fees to the customers who are buying tickets, and then there's a whole mess of other names I've never heard. So they 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 sound great. They only charge maybe between 2 and 4% per, um, for the fee, but I'm, I'm worried about getting the people who are going to buy the tickets to give their credit card information to somebody I've never heard of. Something that might be a UFO. Yeah, and so I, I, tried, I tried looking for reviews for these people, and I couldn't find any reviews. So. Well, let me give you one that one of our staffers has experience with and believes to be exactly for what you're talking about. Okay. It's called Brown Paper Tickets. Did you see that one? Uh, I saw that one, yes. And Brown Paper Tickets is the one that a lot of smaller events might use. Uh, You mentioned for a concert, getting people there. Because you pay nothing as the seller. The buyer pays service fees, but they don't seem bad. It's like a dollar a ticket, and then the credit card processing fee they charge is 3.5%, which you start thinking about what Ticketmaster charges the buyers for things. Yeah, that's the one. (laughs) That's basically basically nothing compared to Ticketmaster. (laughs) Yeah. And it's really easy. People can have a ticket on their phone, basically, and there's uh, tickets that if somebody's not – that tech oriented they can have a paper ticket and so check it out again it's brownpapertickets.com and it is something that i think would be what you're looking for that would give you peace of mind yes and then it's because it's just a one-time event and it's very few tickets and it's 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 good to let somebody else do the do the work thanks clark okay and let me give me feedback if it turns out that i gave you a rotten recommendation. <laughs> I will. I okay. will call you back. <laughs> okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. And do I say your name is Kelso? Yes. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's funny because I mispronounce everybody's name. <laughs> that's fine. Welcome to the Clark Howard anyway. Show. How can I serve you, Kelso? Well, we, we bought a house uh, back in 1977, the one we're living now. We also have other properties. But um, we're on the verge of either selling or renting the house. 
Um, uh, you know, I don't have any experience at all in renting because the properties that we have, I don't have a rent. Um, so the reason that I send you, uh, you know, that I, that I actually uh, want to know is, uh, do I, uh, what would be the best option? Uh, well, all right, let's or- talk about a couple of possibilities. So this is the house you've been living in all this time. You're about to move on somewhere else. Is that right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you sell that house now, you pocket the gain if you're single, um, first quarter million dollars in profit goes right in your pocket. Married, mm-hmm. first $500,000 goes right in your pocket tax-free. Oh. <laughs> if you turn it into a rental property, you eventually lose the tax advantage of being able to sell the property tax-free, and you have to pay some as capital gains tax, basically going back to what you paid for it, to what it's worth now from 1977 till today, Right, you could mm-hmm. have quite a gain. What would That's you right. do? You remember what you paid for the property in the seventies? <laughs> Forty-five thousand dollars. Okay, so I'm right with you because I bought my first property, a foreclosure, in 1978 that I bought for thirty-six thousand uh-huh. dollars. I still own it. Wow. Lived in it first, turned it into a rental property long ago. <laughs> so forty-five thousand. Then, what's it worth today? I will estimate. I you know I haven't talked to any realtor or anything like that, but I will estimate between you know two fifty to two seventy five, something like that. Okay, that would argue for selling that property mm-hmm. because a quarter million dollar rental property is pricey for a rental property. If you think about what you can turn that into versus it being a rental property, that's uh, that's a pretty expensive property to have as a rental. Mm-hmm. So okay. that would argue on two grounds for you to sell it and not have it as a rental. One, that you could generate a quarter million dollars from it that just is tax-free to you Mm -hmm. versus creating a tax time bomb where you would owe tax on $200,000 in gain eventually. Right. Okay. Great. Well, we were, you know, like I said, we don't have any experience in renting, and and I heard that... uh, so many uh, awful stories that I... Oh, yeah. Yeah, you become a new landlord, you can have nightmares galore because uh, so often as a new landlord, you really don't think through the process of once you get somebody in there, they're really hard to get out of there. And the big mistake that new landlords make is they don't do a good job thoroughly screening a prospective tenant. Right. But in your case... I would forget whether it's good to be a landlord or not. It economically doesn't seem to make sense to me for That's you to right. be a landlord in this case. So I would I would bail on the place. Okay. I will sell it then. Okay. Best All to right. you, and, and congratulations on the huge gain you've had over the decades. You've had a place to live at very low cost for all these decades, and now you're going to turn it into a big chunk of money in your pocket. Sounds great. Jim joins us on the Clark Howard Show. And Jim, you have a follow-up question about Ally Bank. I do. I what's do. What's the scoop with Ally? Well, I've been an Ally customer for roughly 10 years, maybe more. But over the past six months, I've tried a couple of times to open a checking account with them. And I go through all the paperwork online, and it gets to a point where it says, we can't produce it, we can't proceed, there's an error, please call, da 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 And then I go ahead and call, and they tell me that 
my credit's frozen, and they can't do anything with the application unless I unfreeze my credit. And I, you know, I, I try to explain those. I don't see why that makes sense. If you have everything that you need to know about me, I can answer all the secret questions and everything. And I guess my question to you, Clark, is, is it customary? No. For a, okay. No. This is completely out of the ordinary. We have had conversations with Ally. We keep waiting for somebody there to show an IQ above room temperature, and it hasn't happened yet. And so Ally is telling you they don't value your business. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It is not customary. When people have their credit frozen, if you're trying to open an account, a bank will use other questions, other procedures to verify your identity to let you open an account, as far as we know, except for Ally Bank. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports this podcast. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust, someone who's got your best interests in mind. And with Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in just minutes. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure that you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. So whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank. Skip the waiting. Go completely online at quickenloans.com slash save. That's quickenloans.com slash S-A-V-E. Let Rocket Mortgage help you get the exact mortgage solution that you need. Go to quickenloans.com slash save. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Stay tuned for 60 seconds of AP News headlines right after this podcast. I'm so glad to have you here with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever get ripped off. Don't let them take advantage of you. Our web address, Clark.com. When you have a question for me, Clark.com slash ask. For years, I've been talking about the skills gap in the United States, that we have people who have had a tough time earning a good middle-class living. The middle class in the United States, so much an issue in the election last November, as the middle class has hollowed out, people have felt a loss of opportunity in America And I've talked repeatedly about the importance of learning new skills, learning new trades, continuing education, and not necessarily college. There are people who benefit from college. There are people that college is not the right path. So how do you take somebody who is maybe not someone who should be in college and get them a skill where they can earn a real living. Mike Rowe, the creator and host of Dirty Jobs, and Somebody's Got to Do It, is with us now on the Clark Howard Show. And Mike, first, I should tell you, my young son loves the whole Dirty Jobs thing. <laughs> he well, just he watches it with fascination. He has excellent taste, your boy. Give him my regards. <laughs> 11 years old, and he thinks it's the greatest TV ever. He likes that and how machines work and all that kind of stuff. Typical kid. Uh, it's great to hear. You know, making uh, making work fun and making 
uh, dirt okay, and having a sense of humor and, and looking at it all through the lens of labor is uh, something that we really didn't see on TV for a long, long time, and I was proud to uh, get a show on the air that, that did all that. Well, what's funny about my son is he doesn't like anything about dirt. Like the whole idea of camping outside, it's like, <laughs> no, but he loves the TV. So That's funny. <laughs> but, but the reason I wanted to talk to you is you share the same thing that I do about this feeling that we need to make a connection between the jobs that are going begging that are well-paying jobs and have not necessarily anything to do with a college education and a workforce that's underemployed or unemployed and you have been into this so much so share if you could please with our listeners what it is you're up to to help bridge that gap well, sure. Um, the short version really starts with 30 jobs. It, it was a show that was very unusual. We kind of snuck it on the air in the dead of night back in 2003. It found an audience. It became the number one show on Discovery, and then it became a huge show on cable and in 200 countries. And it really was you know, a very honest show that never bothered with a second take, but presented real people doing real work exactly as they were. In 2009, you'll remember the economy uh, had a bit of a hiccup. (laughs) Pretty ugly. Yeah, it was ugly. And every morning I woke up and I looked at the headlines and saw 10, 11% unemployment all over the place. But on my little show, uh, and we went to every state multiple times, by the way, in every single state at the height of the recession, I saw help wanted signs everywhere I went. And it convinced me that there was another narrative going on in our economy, in our country, that nobody was really talking or writing about. And that narrative was the skills gap. The existence of, at the time, 2.1 million jobs that people didn't talk about, people didn't aspire to, and no one really discussed. Today, that number's more like 5.8 million. But the real point was... I was uh, I was really moved by the existence of opportunity at a time when everybody was telling us all the opportunity was dead and all of the jobs were gone. And so a foundation called MicroWorks evolved uh, on Labor Day of 2008. The goal of the foundation was to draw attention to good jobs that actually existed that were simply out of favor. And in time, uh, it morphed into a work ethic scholarship program. So to make a very long story short, my time today on a foundational level is spent trying to remind people that opportunity is not only alive and well, it's everywhere, and that while there is absolutely no substitute for an education, it's fallacious and dangerous to believe that a four-year degree is the best path for the most people. Training programs, apprenticeships, on-the-job training opportunities, so many different ways uh, to, to, to become relevant and to master a skill that's actually in demand. In my view, that's for sale today more than it's ever been, and it continues to be ignored by parents and guidance counselors from sea to shining sea. So are you specifically targeting high school juniors and seniors or people of any age? 
Well, that's a great question. Um, on the on the front line, we're impacting most directly uh, the people who are willing to learn a skill: plumber, steam fitter, pipe fitter, architect. You know, the, all the basic construction trades. But the way we try and do that in my foundation is to is to step back a little bit and try to reinvigorate in the minds of 300 million Americans their absolute reliance on these very jobs. So we start with this idea that we have become disconnected, most of us, from where our food comes from and where our energy comes from and where, where our freedom comes from, to be blunt. But in so many fundamental ways, uh, we're just no longer gobsmacked by the lights that come on when we flip the switch or the poop that goes away when we flush the toilet. We take it all for granted, you know. And so to... To, to reinvigorate an appreciation for the basics in the masses is the first way to change the stereotypes and stigmas that have contributed to this skills gap that exists today. And, you know, look, it's, it's very hard to talk about the existence of 5.8 million jobs, you know, and not, and not conclude something from that. And it's, it's not a very flattering thing to conclude. You know, a, a country that's got 80 million people out of work uh, and five million jobs sitting around that no one's interested in, uh, that, that says some things. And so however you interpret it, um, the facts don't lie. Those jobs are real. $1.3 trillion in student debt is real. And the fact that we continue to lend money that we don't have to kids who are never going to be able to pay it back in order to educate them for jobs that no longer exist, that too is undeniable and dangerous. So what's the call to action? Like, how can someone use your resources to go a different path? If you go to microworks.com, you can get a sense of what we're doing in both of those categories, both on a, on a promotional level for the jobs themselves and our yearly work ethic scholarship program, which comes around. And uh, I make as much noise as I can about the people who qualify for that and, and people who we help fund to learn a skill. Because really, Clark, the best way to talk about an economic issue, which really for most people is kind of sleepy, is to tell them a story and to, sh- and to show them someone who, with little more than a college education, suddenly got trained to weld and whose welding certification took them to North Dakota and whose experience in North Dakota allowed them to freelance and make about $150,000 a year, which in turn allowed them to pay off their home, buy a truck, have a second kid, and then hang out their own shingle and start hiring other welders and heavy equipment technicians. And it's those kinds of stories that we deal with every day, and I'm fundamentally in the business of sharing those stories with as many people as possible. Well, you obviously have such a passion about this, and and I love that. I love that in the midst of how upset and pessimistic people were eight years ago that you said there's a better path. And I'm with you completely that that there is no one path for for every individual. And there are many great opportunities out there that pay well. Money's not everything, but... But it, no, it's, it's better to have it than not. But absolutely. You're right. it's, it's not everything. And, and this idea that jobs 
um, are created and that jobs exist in a vacuum, you know, obviously we're seeing efficiencies and automation radically change everything we know about manufacturing and just about every other industry as well. And, you know, I, I can't say anything truly original about that, but I can tell you that the skilled trades, electricians, plumbers, uh, carpenters, the, there, there is a lot of work in this country that simply cannot be outsourced. And the new job security, in my view, uh, really requires the state of mind of a tradesman, regardless of what your job is, sort of a freelance mentality coupled with a skill that will travel with you wherever you go. And look, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but you could do your show from any state behind any microphone. You're, you're not limited. Your, your, your job doesn't limit you geographically. And there's something else to be said about, I think, what's going on in the country right now in terms of our, of our willingness to move. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know when that stopped. Isn't but that the seems- the most odd thing is that, and I think it's uh, because we've gone from a society that was, there was a principal income earner in a household to now there's dual income, that mm-hmm. the whole trailing spouse thing has the yeah. most to do with why mobility that used to be so much a part of economic advancement in America isn't there anymore. It's extraordinary. The expectation that the job of your dreams is waiting for you simply because you matriculated through a higher education path. The idea that it's not only waiting for you, but waiting for you at a salary that you desire and in a zip code that's convenient for you, it's an extraordinary perfect storm of disappointment. (laughs) And the people who, who benefit most from our foundation are people who are willing to retool uh, retrain and relocate. And with the proper skill and the willingness to do those things, that's why our scholarships are work ethic scholarships. They're not easy. And I say to people every day, look, it's entirely possible this particular pile of free money might not be for you uh, <laughs> because you have to make a case for yourself. You have to write an essay. You have to make a video. You have to sign a sweat pledge. You have to do things that most employers uh, really are not allowed to demand that you do today, but in truth, uh, quietly hope and pray you will. <laughs> well, Mike Rowe, the creator and host of Dirty Jobs, and somebody's got to do it. My son's going to be so excited that we talked. And But what I'm excited about is the opportunity that you're laying out for people. Please give the web address again, if you don't mind. Not at all. MikeRoweWorks.com is the simplest thing to enter in. R O W E, we should say. Mike, yeah, Mike my name. R-O-W-E, works. Dot com. Uh, we have a new work ethic scholarship program we're going to announce in March. Get your applications in now. And, um, and yeah, you know, I should mention, too, if you're, if you're some like Dirty Jobs, this is totally different. But I don't know if you remember Paul Harvey and the way I heard of the, uh, the, the rest, the rest of, the story. of the story. Yeah. So, so we're bringing that back under a new title. It's called The Way I Heard It. And it's, uh, it, it's very different than a TV show, but it does touch on a lot of the same themes and a lot of the ideas that I think uh, your audience would appreciate, and, uh, and hopefully your kid as well. It's, uh, it's good for all ages. Well, Mike Rowe, thank you so much for being with us on the Clark Howard Show, and I appreciate what you're doing for your fellow American. 
Miles is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Miles. Hello. How are you doing? Doing well. How about yourself? Great, thank you. Congratulations to you. So you're getting married. Yeah, we're planning on tying the knot next January. Well, great. Oh, January, you smart man. <laughs> That's one of the cheapest months of the year to get married. That was, of course, the first thing on your and your potential, your future bride's minds, right? Was it was cheaper then? I'm right, kidding. Yeah, that, I'm kidding. You know, just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought, you know, like shit, you save money, but hasn't been the case so far. But Okay. <laughs> well, how can I be of service then? So we, we found a venue, and, you know, just to try to help bring down the cost on our parents, we thought about maybe a credit card or a loan for this event to kind of just try to spread out the cost on everybody. So So the idea is that you as a couple want to pay part of the expense, her parents will pay part of the expense, and you're trying to figure out without much money between the two of you how the two of you as husband and wife would pick up a share. Is that right? Right, yeah. I mean, we're looking at ways to not have to go that route, but, you know, in case it comes down to it, um, which one might be a better option? Well, uh, yeah, I hate for a, a new marriage to start with credit card debt. So yeah. my favorite is for you and your bride-to-be to come up with a hard cap on wedding costs. And okay. you're going to spend no more than X dollars, whatever that is. And it's a very easy thing for me to say. It's a hard thing for couples to do. But many couples have magnificently beautiful weddings without spending a tremendous amount of money. Our producer, Joel, when he got married, he and his bride made all kinds of decisions that kept the cost of your rehearsal dinner and your wedding really low. Yeah, uh, we we cut our own paper flowers, try to do something creative and different and, and, and make it cheap. There's just... There's so many ideas and DIY ideas out there. You can check Pinterest.com for a lot of those um, that, that kind of make it unique and then also save money as well. And your your whole, whole event was a beautiful event, Joel, but how much did you spend on the whole thing? I'm trying to remember. Gosh, I think our total was 13000 for everything, and a lot of that was the the venue, What like we did it at at the zoo and that was the most expensive part for sure so we tried to make that kind of our focal point that's where a lot of our money went and then we we tried to go cheap on everything else and uh, you know the average wedding today is right at thirty thousand dollars it's a lot of money isn't it it's a scary number so there are there are so many things you can do to pull that number down Mm -hmm. and if you go i know this sounds old-fashioned but if you went to a bookstore there are any of a number of guides to how to make a wedding more affordable. Right. And so more important than trying to figure out where you're going to put the debt you'd incur, for me it's to not incur the debt. Because the only thing that really matters is that the two of you look into each other's eyes and take vows for each other and spend your life together. That All the rest of it is just details. Right. So... Having a hard cap, you know, Joel's was 13, whatever number would be right for you and your bride-to-be to to not go into debt would be where I would put the effort. If you did have to put it anywhere, though, probably a low-interest credit card, there are so many of those available now, that would be the best place to put the debt if you had to carry debt. 
Thanks for listening to the Clark Howard Podcast. Download new episodes every Monday through Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. A few weeks ago, over 400,000 people listened to my interview with Adam Carolla. I'm Steve Bertoni, host of the Forbes interview. Thank you for your incredible support. This week, check out my chat with hip-hop giant Jason Derulo. What was your first kind of real payday? It was my first publishing check. It wasn't, it wasn't crazy. Man. It, was, it was maybe like 90000 or something like that. That's crazy to me. Subscribe to the Forbes interview on iTunes now, and be sure to give it a rating and review. Every small business wants to find their customer base. Now your customers can find you, too, when you create a website on WordPress.com. You see, WordPress has hundreds of customized themes just to get you started. You just pick a template, and then you can make it your own. Plus, they have 24-7 support when you need it, so you can get back to business. Come see why more websites run on WordPress than any other platform. Go to WordPress.com slash podcasts, and you'll get 15% off your website today. That's WordPress.com slash podcast. What we're learning about the Manchester bomber. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. The father of the alleged Manchester suicide bomber says his son didn't do it. We don't believe in killing innocents, he told the AP. But the father reportedly was a member of an al-Qaeda-backed group in Libya years ago. That, according to a former Libyan security official. Meanwhile, police have carried out raids on a block of apartments in Manchester. Witnesses say they heard explosions. Alan Kinsey was a neighbour of the alleged bomber. The actual family that had been there, I'd, I'd never really come across them yeah. in bad ways. It was always, even when I said hello, he never seemed to speak back to you. He was just like, kept themselves to themselves and that was about it. The British putting more military troops on the streets now as police say it's clear this is a network they're investigating. President Trump has arrived in Brussels for NATO meetings after a visit this morning with the Pope at the Vatican. I'm Rita Foley.